Welcome to the second series of Home From Home, Journeys into Elderly Care, brought to you by Ad Infinitum. My name's Kazar. I've been having conversations with people who make up a fragment of the sprawling social fabric of the elderly care system. This three-part series will take a closer look into care from perspectives that are underrepresented and intersections that require more compassion-led, people-focused support than traditional forms of care are currently providing. The music you are hearing is centred around the South African group chant. The thinking here is that just as it takes a community of people to raise a child, it also takes a community of people to care for our elders. Or at least it should. Dementia affects one in six people over the age of 80, but sadly, there is still shame and stigma attached to those living with it. Although 80% of people living in care homes have dementia, all too often staff are left with insufficient training and investigations have found that they are being treated like second-class citizens. But with increasing government spending cuts to social care, care homes across the country are at breaking point. In this episode, we look into progressive ways of supporting those living with dementia, the real-life impacts of stigmas, and a first-hand account from Bonnie Adair, who worked in care homes as a teenager. This series has often viewed care homes through a critical lens, but it should be stated that this is by no means an attack on the care workers, who routinely go above and beyond what is asked of them, as they genuinely want to make a difference. To understand the everyday realities, I spoke with Bonnie Adair, who started working in care homes as a teenager. Going in as someone new, there were always stories about people that were there. You know, you'd have a a list of duties for your shift that day and say you were on bathing duty in the afternoon or the early evening. But then they'd sort of say, oh, you know, you, you haven't got this person, have you? Oh, she's a real nightmare. Like she'll be a real, she's a real shit to bath. Just, you know, good luck watch out kind of thing and you'd be like what do you mean watch out how do you watch out what does that even but I remember there was this there was this one woman who'd been spoken about like that and I I just still remember now having the most like the most lovely time with her actually and I feel like that was about respect because she didn't suffer fools lightly she didn't want to be shoved around or hurried or And I think because I was really nervous, I just did everything I could to be respectful and probably went a bit OTT, you know, and sort of held the towel and turned my head and, you know, was trying, can I do your back? And, you know, anything I could do to make it feel like a luxury rather than a kind of a, just a job to crack on and get done because I had four more people to bath before, you know, five o'clock or whatever it was. And just sort of sitting with her, I mean, I have no idea if I was supposed to sit with her or not, but, you know, you're not really supposed to leave people in the bath. So I just sort of sat by the edge of the bath and we had a bit of a chat and I washed her back and we talked and it was it was lovely. Like, it was just the nicest experience, really. And I always had a huge amount of respect for her and we always got on great, even though everyone said, oh, she was a bloody nightmare. <laughs> I think one of the things I found hardest was, so I went to uni and then came back to work at the care home in my holidays I think one of the hardest things was going back and finding that some of my favorite residents had passed away there was an older guy always super sharp super smart you know always in a suit really tall again didn't suffer fools 
But I remember one afternoon I managed to get him to sort of talk a little bit about his life and he'd had this amazing life and been very well respected and had an amazing job. And, you know, it was a real kind of pillar of the community and had been very intelligent. And then I remember going back after university and he was at the point of dying and he was no longer in his suit. He was in a kind of, he was basically unclothed in a nappy. Attempting to keep a sheet on him was hell. Lots of incoherent yelling occasionally he'd settle down it felt like he kind of knew who you were but I think it felt very painful to watch someone like that who clearly cared so much about kind of how they were perceived to see them in that way felt almost disrespectful although there was obviously nothing other else that we could kind of do except try and care for him at the end but I think that felt very difficult I did a lot of watching the other carers, the other care assistants and stuff, and the managers and the people who did the medication. It was almost across the board, I'd say, is that they all have this kind of breezy, crack on and get it done, sort of endlessly jolly facade. I always found that quite hard. There were definitely days when I kind of wanted to come home and kind of curl up. It wasn't like you could then sit and have those conversations and be like, God, this is really tough. I'm feeling really emotional about this. Like... I really care because <laughs> that wasn't really, it just wasn't done. I don't think I heard anyone at any point appear to be affected. And I'm sure they were, but it just wasn't ever shown. And so that made it really, really tough. Cause I think it felt quite isolating. You know, I'd sit in this grim, <laughs> this really grim staff room. that was a bit like a sort of had the personality of a doctor's waiting room. And you just sort of sit there eating your sandwich, looking at like just generic posters. I don't even, you know, it was, it was so unbearably like heartless. You sit there for your 15 minutes and be like, I can't wait for this to be over. Like this is literally pointless. I'd rather be sat in someone's room having a chat. <laughs> and to be honest, that was one of my absolute favourite things to do. I went into one and there was, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 residents all sat in a big kind of hall. And it was nice. It was a beautiful, like a, from the distance, it looked like a beautiful grand old house. But they were all sat separately, not facing each other. So the chairs were all facing in their own direction so that no one could really seem to communicate. And they were having tea, I think. And there were flies everywhere, literally everywhere, like big black flies everywhere. And the residents often didn't have the capacity or didn't notice or just given up brushing them away. So they were crawling on them and crawling in the tea. And there was a woman who I'd been asked to go and help another more experienced care assistant. I think we were changing her bed. But what I noticed was there were loads of bank staff, lots of people who didn't speak English as a first language, which I think then made communication quite difficult through no one's fault you know I, there weren't people queuing up to do those jobs it was it was a grim place to work and we went to change this woman and she was so cute in her bed she was so sweet butter wouldn't melt you know she looked angelic long gray hair we went to get her out and she kicked off scratching biting swearing and she needed a hoist to be and I don't know if that was partly because she you couldn't get anywhere near her because she was going to just take you out. She was this tiny little sparrow kind of, you know, bones through skin. But she just was furious at the world and like, you were part of the problem. And so getting her into this hoist was an absolute nightmare because 
you know, you have to get someone strapped in so that they're safe to move from their bed to the other side of the room so you can quickly change the bed and then put them, keep them in the hoist and then get them back into the bed all without being bitten, scratched or like dropping them. Because actually that's a genuine concern, getting someone into a hoist, is if you drop them, they're going to break something. And it was a disaster. It was an absolute nightmare. Like we didn't drop her, but it was a miracle that we didn't. And it just felt awful. I was like, I don't feel like I'm doing this with someone say so. Like, I feel like I'm doing this despite them, against them. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm helping here. I don't feel like I can have a chat and make it all okay. Or just give someone like a, a moment of light in their day. I just feel like I'm swimming upstream. And it just, I think knowing that I was only there for a day. And so I couldn't really, didn't feel like I could help or make a difference. That was awful. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Selfishly. Spending cuts have impacted care homes and their workforce drastically, with fewer staff, higher workloads and lower pay. Providing person-centred care can become harder and harder. But for people living with dementia, who are amongst some of the most vulnerable, this type of care is crucial. A model that expands on the idea of putting the individual at the centre of care is the butterfly approach. Founded by Dr David Sheards, it is described as bringing humanity to those living with dementia. With empathy at its core, it advocates for feeling being the unwritten language of dementia and reimagines care home settings from hospital-esque environments to brightly coloured homes. I spoke with Peter Buitz, the Managing Director of Meaningful Care Matters, who are now championing the butterfly approach. Traditional models of care, with, particularly within seniors' care, is very much based in the medical model. It's very much about disease, how we can support people from a deficit perspective. So what people are unable to do for themselves, we would then step in to provide that support to complete whatever that task may be. It can often be very task focused and we would say very clinical. The model that we work with really focuses on looking at people's core spirit. So old person's homes are not institutions or hospitals. They're exactly what it says on the tin. It's a home. So let's start to look at our senior care approach in the grounding of being at home. So the whole premise of this model starts on people's individual stories, but people who work and people who were supporting. And everybody has a story to tell. It doesn't matter what type of life a person has lived, but everybody's life has importance, it has meaning, and it has connections. I think it's very, very sad when we see places where people don't get to truly be themselves. So when we look at Aboriginal Australians, people would tell their story in order to then help next generations come forward and to experience a better life and lived experience than maybe what their forebearers have. So we've come back to that premise. And what Dr. David Sheard was very, very clever in doing is pulling elements of individual story and making that the centricity of this model of care. When you walk into an environment where the butterfly approach is put into place, it looks, feels and sounds different you will feel a warm, loving home environment. And people will often say, it just feels like coming home. Sadly, there is still a very large stigma and stereotype that is associated with dementia. 
there is still a common misconception that robs people of their voice. And actually people living with a dementia, regardless of what stage of dementia experience they're living through, they still have a voice. They still have a story that's being written. As long as they draw breath, people draw breath, that story continues on. So what we find is that the common misconceptions are stereotyping people into a box that cognition limits the ability for people to voice their opinion and what they would like. All of a sudden, we start to put very well-intentioned interventions in place to care for people But actually, we neglect to stop and reflect on that and to say, actually, is this what the person's voice is really all about? I think, sadly, in some places too, particularly when we look around the world, there is still the misconception that people who are living with dementia are mad as almost like a demonic possession in some cases. Whilst that's not a common mainstream for the Western world, I would argue that there is still an element of oh, that person's just demented. And what we seek to challenge is those stereotypes. And by coming back to learning the language of feelings and communications, it's really something that's universal to everybody, regardless of background and lived experience. We as human beings are feeling beings. So when we understand our own emotional attachments to things, we can then see that in other people and step into their lived reality. And that way, we're always able to bridge the gap in some way, shape or form. Misconceptions of this nature feed into a lasting societal stigma, which can prevent people acknowledging their symptoms, causing a reluctance in obtaining a timely diagnosis, and family members can struggle with feelings of shame, guilt and anger. To understand the real-life impacts, I spoke with Sabita Bagiratham from Community Access Support Services in Bristol, who work towards tackling stigmas in mental ill health. With family roots in Sri Lanka, we spoke about how services have overlooked South Asian communities and how a cultural stigma affected her uncle's experience with dementia. We're still not very represented within services. So kind of ironically, often we're overrepresented as far as staff is concerned particularly in the kind of roles that aren't very well paid, you know, whether it's hospital porters or care workers are really not paid equitably, but we're not represented in a proportional way as far as service take up goes, I think, for health and social care. And certainly if I think about dementia, researchers have shown hugely for people of South Asian origins, we tend to get diagnosed with dementia at a much more advanced stage than people of white British origins. There have been two family members who've had a dementia diagnosis. Um, My uncle's was um, not diagnosed too late. He and my aunt don't have any children. So me and my my family, my daughters, where they're adopted families, so my daughters see them as extra grandparents. And I see them as, as extra parents, really. I could see that there were changes in my uncle and from my line of work, it seemed quite clearly dementia, but um, it was a very taboo topic for him and my aunt. So, and, and it's funny because they knew my work involved dementia. So they were interested in my work, but actually when it's in your own backyard, I had to really, really go carefully, come into it in a roundabout way and not go straight into, I think these are symptoms of dementia, but just sort of draw attention to some of the changes I was noticing in my uncle around behaviours, 
and sort of confidence around things and then suggest that I think it's worthwhile you writing all these down and taking them along to the GP. Their GP wasn't fantastic immediately. And I had to, it was awful. And we don't live nearby. I had to keep encouraging them to go back. And, you know, they're very much of that generation that the GP's on a pedestal. So if the GP sent them away, they were like, oh, we don't want to trouble him. It's like, you're not troubling him. He's not doing his job properly. You can go back. You must go back. When physical things started changing, when my uncle started falling a lot, that's when they got concerned. Whereas, you know, I had concerns way before the falling. You know, they they did persevere with the GP because of the falling. But, but again, not really the proper support, you know, straight away when someone starts to go down the road of a dementia diagnosis, they should have looked at my aunt and she should have had a separate appointment and be seen as a family carer of someone with dementia. And I mean, she's 92 this year. She's not a young woman. Her needs should also have been looked at. And yeah, it, similarly, he had to then go into more acute care in a hospital and their knowledge around dementia seemed really patchy. So I was, when he was becoming agitated, which sometimes gets called, I think, delirium with dementia, you know, they just wanted to keep doing more blood tests on him and maybe he's dehydrated. And I was saying, no, but it, it seems more to do with his dementia than, again, not just physical. The times that we spent with my uncle and particularly my younger daughter used to come a lot with us when we used to go and see him in hospital and he was moved around so many different hospitals. And again, that kind of knowledge about keep moving someone with dementia from ward to ward, hospital to hospital. It's, you know, you're saying he's agitated because you think he's dehydrated, but that's causing agitation because, you know, his, his short term memory just isn't there. So he just doesn't know where he is and it's different staff all the time. And but my younger daughter used to come and when he wasn't agitated, he was so peaceful. He was in a whole different part of memory. And I think that was the hardest thing for my aunt. I can understand why she couldn't just go with it. You know, she was at the cold face of care. But for us going on visits, we could just go with it. So if he thought that he was 50 years younger and he thought I was somebody else, and talking to me like I was someone else and telling me this whole story about, yes, when we climbed that mountain and wasn't the fog amazing then when the sun shone through it and he would be telling these stories from his youth and that I hadn't heard before. And they were such beautiful times with him. And my younger daughter really responded to that. And she knows enough about dementia through my work that how reassuring it is for someone with dementia to let them just go with that. You know, it was beautiful times, even though we were in really ugly surroundings in a white hospital ward with a curtain pulled around you. And I think a lot of family carers feel a bit uncomfortable, like, oh, where they what did my aunt say? Um, we're pandering to him. He can do better. He, you know, he can remember things. If, if we pander to him, make him go back to 30 years ago, it's pandering to him. It's like, it's not, he's not messing around and it's not pandering to him. It's giving him huge comfort. And it's better than him just being given antipsychotic drugs. You know, this calms him down. And, and it was it was really sad when he passed away and dementia was the cause of death on his death certificate. And my aunt was really, and is still really very upset about that. You know, his funeral, when people were asking me about dementia, and because of my work, I was very, it wasn't like I was broadcasting it everywhere, but I was, you know, quite practical, yes. He, he died of dementia, but she wasn't saying the same thing. She was talking about the falls and it was all the falls in the end that is um, what caused his death. 
It's clear more work needs to be done in ending the shame and blame attached to dementia. Not just so people are treated with dignity, but to give families healing space and closure. Peter Buitz had some advice for bettering our understanding of caring for someone living with dementia. If you're living and walking alongside a family member, a friend, a loved one living with dementia, just go with the flow. There are going to be some moments in time that people living with dementia, that that person is going to recognise you as you. There have been times when I would sit with my grandfather whilst he didn't have a, a significant experience of cognitive impairment. There were times where he would often confuse me with his sons, my uncles. And for that moment, I just stepped into the reality and just went along with his lived experience that he was talking with his son. But somewhere in that conversation, at some time, there was a point where he would go, Peter, is that you? Yeah, Grandpa, it's me. Oh, how? And then he would connect with me as his grandson. And what I would say to, to friends and to loved ones is that know that the person is still there and you are still there. And that's what matters most. It's about being open. It's about being aware of our own emotions and not necessarily immediately going to the stereotype that may be attached with whatever our own lived experience is. It's keeping an open mind and really looking at how we can learn from all of the different generations that we encounter within society. Put your thinking aside, embrace it with open arms and be involved, get involved with something and get to know somebody, whether that's through a friendship with a next door neighbor. And I think that that's one of the great things that this pandemic has, if there could be anything great that came out of this pandemic, is that people are now starting to talk to neighbors. And often in our community, we may have neighbours that are elderly. And so by having those chats over the fence or knocking on the next door apartment to say, hey, you're doing okay, that's a huge step forward. In terms of the care home system, I loved the experiment where they had four-year-olds go in to care homes. And I think there's something to learn from having young people and older people connected. I also think our whole perspective on what's important needs to change. And I think caring as a whole, whether that's for children or elderly or people with disabilities, caring in this society is just seen as like a job that has almost no worth. And yet it's something that in our lives, almost all of us engage with in some way, shape or form. And I just think the whole pay structure needs to change because if you can put more money into it, then you have more resources. And I think that really makes a difference. Everyone who is who I've spoken to who is in later years, like the things that they talk about as being important are not the things that we obsess about in youth. They're just not. They kind of talk about about family is always one of the one of the first things they talk about and laughter and love and you know these things that when we're younger we're sort of panicking about how we look or you know whether we're sort of we found our purpose or and people some of the happiest people were just like we'd talk about family like that was what was that was what was the joy in their life that was what they felt like they should always have spent even more time with 
And the people that were happiest were the ones that had family. The people that had no one for whatever reason, or worse still, they had family that didn't visit. Those are the people that broke your heart. I hate the fact that that we shut people away in care homes and like sort of just leave people to rot. You know, I see my nan in her community and I see how she responds to younger people and see her with my niece and it's like, they have so much to share together. She has so much to teach and we're losing all of that. But I think because of our, the way our society is set up and because of our fear of death and aging and and because it's sad and scary and so then maybe we want to protect ourselves and don't want to engage. I mean, I think, I think my best moments in care homes have always been connecting with people, sitting down, having a chat without any kind of ulterior motive and just seeing, seeing where things go and realising that I'm not just there to make a cup of tea, I'm there to learn from a human being who knows a hell of a lot more than I do and has had a hell of a lot more life experience and who's impacted me in a really incredibly wonderful way. There is so much to learn and it's a benefit to us, not just to them. You've been listening to the third and final episode in series two of Home From Home, Journeys Into Elderly Care, featuring words from Peter Buitz from Meaningful Care Matters, Sabita Bagiratham from Community Access Support Service and Bonnie Adair. The podcast was narrated, produced, edited and music arrangement was by Keziah Wenham Kenyon. Commissioned by Ad Infinitum with support from the North Wall. We hope this series has amplified the personal stories that would otherwise be kept behind closed doors and provide the listeners with an opportunity to reflect on something they may not have considered. To broaden the scope in general of what it means to care, starts with empathising with others, and more importantly, ourselves. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.